take your copies of God's Word and open them with me again to uh, Matthew's Gospel, the second chapter, as we look at the third of four different characters of Christmas that we're considering this Advent season. Today, we're looking at the Magi, the wise men. And we're going to cover some uh, texts that we also covered last week, but we're going to have a, a different perspective. Last week, we looked at Herod. This week, we're looking at the Magi. Uh, some of you are, uh, well, actually, hopefully most of you are familiar with the television show, The Amazing Race. It's been on for, I don't know, 107 years now, it feels like. And people uh, get together in pairs, they form teams, and they go literally around the world, searching from one city to another, following different clues, complete com- com- completing different tasks tasks and competing in different events uh, in order to uh, get to the final stage. You know, week by week, different teams are eliminated. You never want to be the last person to arrive at a certain checkpoint. And the winner gets a whole bunch of money and, you know, had a free trip around the world. So that's not so bad either. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I think the year was 2007, um, uh, one of the uh, ministers at the church that I was a member of, Garrett, uh, put on an amazing race in San Francisco for some of us who were there. And so I want to show you some of the pictures of this amazing race. First, we have uh, this one. And uh, I know what you're wondering, uh, Stephen, do you have a license for those guns? And the answer is, I did not at the time. And uh, they have since been uh, confiscated by the state of California. Uh, so that was a group of us that went on this amazing race, searching for different clues all around. Uh, the reason I'm not wearing sleeves uh, is because we, the, the, and everybody else is, that, that really makes me look rather vain, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, the, uh, the race that we were in, star, the first leg of the race was a, was a running race, literally across the Golden Gate Bridge. I did not win that leg of the race. Uh, however, uh, we went on. So the, the next picture will show me and my uh, team partner, that's Natalie, and, uh, and uh, we were pretty hardcore. That's when I had a little bit more hair, um, but really not enough to justify as much was going on in my head. The next uh, image uh, will show us at the Hate, at Hate Ashbury, which if you've been to San Francisco, was kind of the, the, uh, the epicenter of the psychedelic music movement. And uh, anyway, we were, we were solving a puzzle there after finding a clue to get there. And then the last picture that I have is us in front of the San Francisco Zoo acting like seals. That was the task that we had to complete. And now I will spare you from any more pictures from that amazing race. But the point of the race is this. You, you, you have a sign, you have a clue, you figure it out, you move on to the next phase. Uh, the whole thing is a search and a race to the end uh, to, to win the prize. Today, uh, with the Magi in Matthew 2, we see a group of men, wise men, Magi as they're called, on an amazing race of sorts, uh, on a, a hunt for significance, a hunt for the meaning of a sign that they saw in the sky. Here as we look at these amazing racers, if you will, these magi of antiquity, we find, and this is what we're focusing in on, uh, these characters and what they reveal to us from God's Word today, that the magi, these wise men, show us ultimately God's care for those who are far away and searching. The magi show us God's care for those who are far away and searching. May we, as we come to respond in faith to God who comes to us, uh, may, may we live as lights in the world who draw others to Jesus. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Some of this we read last week, but it's still important for our text or for our time today. 
There we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or your translation may say magi, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Magi, these wise men from the east, show us God's care for those who are far away and searching. Let us do as we have the last two weeks and consider who are the Magi, who are these wise men. Well, first of all, they are very likely Persian or Babylonian in ethnicity, in nationality. They come from the east. Uh, There may have been three of them, maybe less, maybe more. We can't really know for sure. Matthew doesn't really care to tell us how many of them there were. You can add this to your list of Stephen ruins all your favorite Christmas carols. We three kings of Orient are. There probably weren't three, or well, we don't know for sure if there were three. And when we think of Orient, just think of East. They weren't as far East as from China. Um, So there you go. I've just demystified uh, that hymn. You'll never enjoy singing it again. You can add to that list, yes, Mary did know. (laughs) I'll stop there. There may have been three wise men, maybe less, maybe more. We don't know for sure. Matthew doesn't care to tell us. But they're definitely Persian or Babylonian. They they come from the east, verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us, which is in the direction of Persia, uh, modern-day Iran. Uh, they, They come to Judea from that direction. Many uses of the word magus or magoi, as it's translated in in our scriptures, wise men or magi. I prefer magi because it's more specific to who they are. But magi usually pertains to a special priestly caste of Medes and Persians, kind of a a shaman-like astrologer sort of person with some political uh, influence and uh, and other uh, uh, special status in that Nation. This means specifically them being Persians, being Babylonians, that they were Gentiles. They were not Jews. There are some scholars who would say, oh, well, Matthew doesn't tell us that they're, not, that, that, that they're not Jews, so it's possible that they could have been. But I think in all likelihood they were not. These are people who are far away from God's people uh, physically and far away from God spiritually. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're from Persia. They're from Babylonia. These magi are also highly respected in their pagan religion. To be called a, a, a magus or a, a, to be a part of a group of magi, that's the plural, was to be uh, uh, respected in the faith system in, uh, around which and in which you lived and worshipped. Most understandings of what the magi did on a day-to-day basis surround several different things. 
some in antiquity see them as astrologers and astronomers. They were studying the night sky, the movement of bodies through the night sky, the moon, the stars, constellations, where they were, uh, appearance of new stars or comets, things that may be moving through the night sky. This is obviously important for the context of Matthew 2. We find that these magi in particular were the astrologer-astronomer type. They were studying the night sky for uh, omens, for signals of uh, of importance, of significance. Some magi in antiquity were also involved in sorcery. Uh, they would lead pagan worship practices. They would often give political advice. They would deliver divine oracles to Persian and Babylonian kings. They were not kings themselves. So there again, we three kings. They weren't kings. There weren't three. They weren't from China. Uh, but they were uh, influential in, in their culture. They were influential for kings and those who were in authority. They would, again, bring messages from the gods, so to speak, to those who were in authority. They would give blessing over uh, 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 war plans and battle movements and that sort of thing. They were very likely not worshipers of the God of Israel, Yahweh, unless they worshipped him as one of many other gods in their pantheon at best. So they're Persian, Babylonian, they're highly respected in their pagan religion. The third, the Magi arrive relatively late in the nativity story. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, has Herod asking, you know, when, when and where they saw the star, and he uh, eventually sends to Bethlehem to have killed uh, all of the boys that were two years old and under, the idea there being that the star arrived somewhere in, within the last two years. So the Magi did not arrive at the manger scene in Bethlehem. So, I'm not saying you have to throw out your magi from your nativity sets that you have set up in your homes, but maybe just set them on another part of the room, okay? They're coming later. uh, 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 My seminary president, uh, Dr. Orge, his wife, Anne, is a a children's Bible teacher and an expert in um, really in teaching children the Bible. And she would, every Christmas around their house, would set up multiple nativities uh, around their home. She had a collection of many, and she would always make sure that the Magi were far away from the manger scene, usually in another room or another part of the room. She was a stickler about that. And if Miss Ann says the Magi were not there, well, I'm inclined to listen to her. So the Magi were Persian Babylonian, They're significant uh, in their pagan religion, and they arrive late in the story. That's what we can know from them, about from history and from a little bit from God's Word. But what are these men like? What do we know about their character? Uh, What does their appearance in the nativity story say to us about who, who, what sort of people they are? Well, first, in verses 1 and 2, we find that these men are seekers. These magi are looking. They're searching. These pagan men were not necessarily in search of the birth of the king of the Jews, but they were constantly searching the skies for significant developments on the world stage. They likely were searching the night sky for other omens of significance as well, not just for the arrival of new kings, but maybe for the fall of another kingdom or the death of a king or rise of a a new people. It is somewhat ironic that many of our translations call these men wise men, Several places in Scripture, 
God condemns and speaks about the folly of those who are sorcerers, those who rely upon magic, those who uh, seek to, uh, uh, to know things uh, spiritually apart from the Word of God. It is folly to try to know God apart from hearing from His revealed Word. And yet, these ironically wise men, really these foolish magi, from a spiritual standpoint, as seekers... Uh, they, they actually don't know the answer to what they seek. They're called wise men, but they don't really know what they're looking for. As pagan Gentiles, they don't know the wisdom that comes with worshiping and serving the Lord. And still, it is to these spiritually foolish people, these spiritually foolish magi, that God reveals His Messiah, the coming of the King of the Jews. For all of the folly of their pagan seeking, their pagan worshiping, their pagan star-searching, God does not despise their search for significance, but instead points them to the most significant discovery that they will ever make. Their searching is so serious as seekers that they ultimately take about a two-year trek, an amazing race of sorts, to find the child who was born king of the Jews. Think about it. People are searching for something of significance. If you don't really care about what it is that you're searching for, you're going to spend two years traveling across the near eastern desert and wilderness to find the thing that you're searching for. They're seekers. They're genuine seekers of whatever it is that they're looking for. But when they find something of significance, they make sure to go and find it. And verses 9 and 11 tell us, 9 through 11, tell us that they rejoice at finding what they've been seeking for. Look again, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know how much more superfluously Matthew could have said how excited they were. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him and offered him these various gifts. So there upon leaving Herod's company, being instructed by Herod, that tyrant king, to go and find the child so that he could go and worship him too, they rejoice at seeing the star again, the star that they had seen some two years ago, the star that they had followed westward toward Jerusalem, as that star eventually, and and I would say supernaturally, comes to rest over the house where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are living. They go into the house and they worship Jesus, this baby. Now, that word worship is used in different ways throughout the course of Scripture. Many times it's used to literally mean worship, like we worship God. We, we prostrate ourselves before Him. We sing songs of praise to Him. We worship Him for who He is. We give glory to His name. But in this sense, that word worship probably means something more like honored Him as a dignitary. Remember, they, they come to see the King of the Jews, a, a new political leader who is on the stage. They themselves probably do not recognize that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised savior of the world. So whatever worship they would give to him is the same sort of obeisance, if you will, uh, homage that they would give to any other sort of king. They are at this point probably not yet converts to Judaism or to any sort of faith in Jesus, but still the gifts that they give are significant. The gifts that they give are gifts that are reserved for great dignitaries. They bring him frankincense and myrrh, which are uh, uh, spices uh, of a sort that come from a resin from trees that grow in Arabia. 
very valuable. They were uh, used in cooking. They were used for burning as incense. They were uh, often used as uh, part of the perfuming of dead bodies as well. These are important, expensive gifts. And they bring him gold. Hello. You don't bring, you don't bring gifts of gold to just anybody. You bring gifts of gold to, to people of significance, to people of power, to people of authority. Gold was as valuable then, even as it is today. To give a gift of gold was to give a significant gift, to, to show the value of the one to whom you are giving the gift to by giving them something as valuable as gold. They worship Jesus with joy. They, they give him honor as a dignitary, as a king giving him gifts that are fit for a king. So these seekers, though we do not know what ultimately becomes of them, once they leave the stage here in verse 12, we don't hear from them again, and they don't appear in any of the other Gospels. Though we don't know what ultimately becomes of them, we find that they have great joy in discovering that for which they have searched. That's what these men are like. That's about all that we can say about them. They're searchers who rejoice greatly when they find what they're searching for. Friend, let me turn that to you this morning. Are you searching? Are you looking for significance? Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for meaning in life? Are you searching for joy? Are you looking for hope? Are you in need of redemption? Are you searching for God? Then this morning, consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Are you searching for these things? Find Him. The truth is, we live in a world where people are constantly searching today. People search for all of these things, significance, purpose, meaning in life, joy, hope, redemption, God. And the answer is, the biblical answer to all of these is Jesus. Now, there are lots of things that we can look for, and there's lots of things that that people do look for in order to fill these, these holes or to fulfill these things for which we are searching But there is none who fills these needs like Jesus. The Magi may not have understood it, but Jesus was God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Are you searching for God? Look to Jesus. He's the one who who would come to save his people from their sins as he would live a sinless life and then die on a cross some 30 or more years later for the sins of the world and be raised from the dead by the power of God to give rescue, to give forgiveness of sin to all who trust in him. Are you looking for redemption? Are you looking for rescue? Are you looking for forgiveness? Look to Jesus. Do you need hope in the and joy in the middle of an anxious and tumultuous year that has been 2020. Find it in Jesus who gives the hope of life after this one, the the hope of a, a life that will never end, irrespective of what sort of chaos may take place in this one. Are you looking for meaning, for purpose, for significance in life? Then consider Jesus. Come to Jesus who comes to give life and to give it abundantly. Not just life after death, but abundant life in relationship with God today. Friend, are you searching? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And now I turn to speak to most of those of us who are Christians. Have you found Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Him? 
Have you come to find in him all these things that, that we, these great things that people search for, God, redemption, hope, joy, meaning, purpose, significance. Have you found him? Yes? Good. Then point others to him. If you've found him, point others to him. I hope you'll allow me a moment to analogize the story of the Magi a little bit. I try not to do this too often because it's not always a very good practice to do. But I think there's a lesson for us here, an application for us as Christians who have found Jesus and the importance of pointing others to him. These Magi, these wise men from the East, are led to Jesus by the light of a star that appears in the night sky, a star they had not seen before, one that appears seemingly supernaturally in conjunction with some sector of the night sky that has to do with the people of Judea. And they're led to where Jesus is by that star. That star comes to rest over the house where Jesus is and they go in and worship him. They are led to Jesus by the light of a star. Later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus will say to the disciples and those listening to his sermon on the mount that you are the light of the world. You're sitting on a hill that cannot be hidden No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but sets it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the whole house. He says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, we are the light of the world, Jesus says. We who have come to know Jesus, who have come to trust in him as the Savior who died for our sins and rose again, the one who gives us abundant life now and eternal life after we die. He has made us to be light to the world. He is meant for us to shine brightly and to draw others to Him. We are to be, for those who are searching, like that star in the night sky for the Magi. Sometimes, though, we would rather not shine so brightly. Sometimes, being a city on a hill, we would rather put up walls around our city on every side to guard that city on a hill from encroaching darkness. And let's be honest, we, from the position in which we are as a church, oftentimes we look out at the world and we see darkness encroaching. We see darkness coming closer. We see rebellion against God, people who are far from God growing closer and closer and closer to us as a church, and in fear, we put up walls to guard ourselves from encroaching darkness. Here, a city on a hill with walls built up so high that the world cannot see the light that it puts out. But as Christians, we've been made to shine brightly so that we might draw others to Jesus. Dear friends, we need to, even as tempted as we may be, to protect what we have in Christ, to protect our way of life as Christians, so to speak. We need to do our very best and strive by and with God's grace to tear down those walls and to turn up the light. We are the light of the world. A city on a hill meant to draw people by our light in darkness to the light that is Jesus Christ. We do not have the luxury of building walls to protect our institutions. We do not have the luxury as the light of the world to hide our light so that the darkness may not see it, 
Do you, do you not see, do you not understand that when there is a, dar- a bright light in, a, in, the, in the darkness of wilderness, that those who are lost are going to go to it? Consider a lighthouse on a rocky beach. The purpose of the lighthouse is to, when there are nights where visibility is low, to shine a light out into the ocean so that boats and ships that are coming in may not crash into the rocky shore. Consider a lighthouse owner or a lighthouse keeper who afraid that even in the midst of the storm or even on a clear night as the light is shining, uh, afraid that, that pirates or Other brigands may see the light and be tempted to come and raid the city. He shuts off the light. Afraid of the darkness and what comes in the darkness. Pirates and those who would come to raid a city. He turns off the light so that those people would not see to to protect what he has. Reality is more more times than not there are people who are lost in the ocean needing light to guide them safely to harbor rather than there are pirates looking to destroy a city a lighthouse keeper who turns off his light may think he is saving his town from pirates but he's ultimately putting lives of innocent people at danger as they crash into the rocks so it is with a church who is a city on a hill that puts up walls to guard their light from shining we are made to be the light of the world to shine brightly and draw others to jesus Of course it's going to look like darkness is encroaching. But amidst the darkness are not just enemies to the gospel, but people who are searching for meaning and significance. People who are searching for God and redemption. We must shine brightly, tearing down our walls, turning up the light as the church so that the world might see. Other times, though, understanding that we we cannot live uh, simply in this city. We can't just... uh, you know, our lives as Christians aren't meant to, to just be lived within the, the, the fish tank, the bubble of the church. We go out into the world. So we have to have jobs and provide for our families and other things. But as the light of the world going out into the world, we walk with lamps in our hands into darkness. We walk with the light of the gospel into a dark world. But sometimes the temptation is, as Christians living in a dark world, to hide the light, to put it under a basket, to not be seen as weird, to not draw attention to ourselves because of the Messiah, the God, the Jesus that we worship. Sometimes it would just be easier to not be so weird if people didn't know that we were Christians. Dear friend, those of you who are bold enough to walk out into the darkness or perhaps are tempted to cover your light, to cover the light of the gospel in your daily living, let me encourage you, let me challenge you, knowing that you are the light of the world, meant to draw people to Jesus, to live your life in the world with your light of the gospel, with the light of Christ, with the truth of Jesus on display, with boldness, with courage, as the Holy Spirit is glad to supply to you in order to guide other people to Jesus. We don't do a lost world any good by walking out into it without the hope, without the light of the gospel shining brightly. Now that means for some of us, we need to get comfortable being the light of the world. 
We need to be comfortable being awkward. We need to be comfortable, be used to conversations getting weird when we make them about Jesus. But that's who we've been made to be is the light of the world. Light going into darkness is not often received with, with gladness, is not often embraced readily, but people are drawn to it. If you have found Jesus, dear friend, you've been made to be the light of the world, so point others to him. Be bold, be brave, let your light shine among men. As a church, let us tear down whatever walls we are tempted to build up to protect whatever it is that we have in the gospel that we think the gospel itself is not powerful enough to protect and let us shine brightly like that star in the night sky that called, that drew, that guided those searchers to Jesus the Messiah. Have you found Jesus? Point others to him. Dear friend, are you searching Consider this Jesus, who is the greatest answer to all of the important, most important things that we search for in life, for God, for redemption, for hope, for joy, for meaning, for purpose, for significance. Jesus fills all these needs in spades. Brothers and sisters, he has done that for us as we've come to trust him. Now let us shine brightly that others may see it, see him in us as well. Let's pray together.